with me while we read the Word of God. Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted, and you rescued them. They cried to you, and you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth, and you have been my God from my mother's womb. Do not be far from me, because distress is near, and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan, encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions, mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are disjointed. My heart melts like wax, melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments amongst themselves, and they've cast lot for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abandoned the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but he listened to him when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on the earth will eat and bow down. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to the people yet to be born. They will declare what the Lord has done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Brett. And good morning, everyone. 
My name is Lane. I'm one of the pastors here. And today is our first Sunday of Lent. We are stepping into a new teaching series called Ashes to Ashes because we just wanted to make your, you know, entrance into springtime really cheery. Um, the, full, the full title of this series is Ashes to Ashes, The Lenten Path to Hope. Uh, last week we started uh, Lent on what we know on the church calendar as Ash Wednesday. And this season is meant to be a time of prayer, a time of fasting, and a time of repentance. In the Old Testament, the ancient Hebrews would cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes as an act of worship when they had something that they needed to repent of or something that they needed to grieve. Ashes are a reminder of the Genesis narrative, which teaches us that man was made from the dust of the earth. And without the breath of God in our souls, we are but dust. Hence the phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So this season becomes for us a time to intentionally take a look at the way we are living and accept Christ's invitation, joyful invitation, into repentance. Friends, repentance is good news. Repentance is a good thing. I know repentance kind of gets a bad rap, but repentance is what is life for us. It is the first word of the gospel proclamation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, one may wonder why the imagery of repentance and grief are both ashes. Why are repentance and grief connected? And we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, we're going to unpack and take a look at the passage that Pastor Brett just read. I'm going to give a little bit of context as to why, how, and when we think this passage was written and discover what this passage may hold for us during this Lenten season. But first, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I am so grateful to be here before your word. We ask that as we study the scriptures, as we hear from you, that you would change us transform us, make us more into your likeness. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here with us. With us, Would you come and have your way? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Psalm 22 is a psalm, uh, of course, and it's a psalm of lament. Psalms were these artistic, poetic pieces that were often meant to be sung. We think of these psalms um, being written over a long period of time, about 500 years from the, the Jewish manar- um, Hebraic, Hebraic there we go, uh, monarchy all the way to the post-exilic period. So about the 11th or 10th century BCE to the 5th or 6th century BCE. And many of them were used in temple worship. The people would gather together for worship at the temple and they would sing these psalms out loud and they'd be accompanied with instrumentation. Uh, and the psalms have lots of genres. There are hymns of praise, there are, there are pilgrimage or psalms of ascent, there are wisdom psalms, and Psalm 22 is a blend of a couple of different genres. It's a, it's a lament, it's a prayer for help, and it's also a hymn of praise. These two things are connected. Um, and a lot of psalms would blend styles like this. And there's a note at the top of this psalm which says, to the, uh, for the choir director, according to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. So what's happening here is that there was likely this psalm that was written by King David around 1000 BCE. And this psalm is being written later to the tune of that psalm. We've actually seen this in our history uh, when a lot of the hymns that we know and love today, they're actually taken from common folk songs. They use those melodies and put theological language to them. 
And we see this a lot in biblical literature where there would be those who would continue in the tradition of a prophet or an author after they passed away. A lot of people think this is what happened with the prophet Isaiah. We see this in the Psalms now, where this is a Psalm of David. It doesn't mean that it was necessarily written by David, but it was written in the tradition of David, taking his experiences into account. And you'll see throughout the language in this Psalm that this kind of covers a lot of David's suffering throughout many um, eras of his life. Uh, because there was no copyright back then. They didn't really see writing in someone else's name as like plagiarism. It was a way to kind of honor the person that had come before in the school of, of thinking that they came from. Biblical scholars uh, tend to believe that this psalm was written during the post-exilic period. Can you say post-exilic period? <laughs> Biblical scholars, all of you, we love it. Um, just to give you a little reminder, a refresher, Israel, they kind of had a, a tough time trying to get in the world, and they had been conquered several times. They were split into two kingdoms. We had the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah, and uh, during that time, they were conquered by several empires, starting with the Babylonians, and during this time, they were scattered into exile, and um, uh, their identity, their culture, their land, Everything they knew about who they were was ripped away from them. And we see the Jewish people during this time struggling, trying to remain faithful to God. And they're met with mixed success, right? We have some people that are really faithful to God and others that don't do so well. And the prophets often urging the people to come back to worship of Yahweh. And one day, a king in the Persian Empire allows some of the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership under Ezra and Nehemiah to return from exile, to go back to their land, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and to rebuild their temple. And this was a really interesting time for the Jewish people as they attempted to kind of recover their ethnic and religious identity, trying to figure out who they are after all of this happened, because there was a lot of processing they had to do after they saw God, what, they, what some felt like they had abandoned his people allowed them to go through all of these terrible things and conquests and suffering. They're trying to reconcile these things. If God is faithful, how can these things be true? If God really is who he says he is, how could these things have happened? And a lot of Psalms came from this era, including the book of Lamentations. Lamentations didn't take place in the post-exilic, but it took place during the Babylonian exile. The prophet Jeremiah was writing, talking about how their temple had been destroyed, how their people had been scattered. The whole book of, of Lamentations is full of, well, Lamentations. And uh, basically, a Lamentation is a piece of worship, piece of art, that is dedicated to the sorrow and the grief of the worshiper being expressed to God. And the Hebrew people, they suffered a lot, and so they lamented a lot. Now, what's fascinating about this, about this aspect of their culture, this, this wasn't just some fringe poetry that a few grumpy people indulged in from time to time. This was corporate worship for the Hebrew people. This is what they brought to God with their sacrifices and with their praise. They brought their laments. There's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to lamentations, and about a third to a half of the psalms in your Bible are psalms of lament dedicated to the grief and the sorrow of the worshiper. If we were going to sum up what lamenting is, it's basically this. It's saying, Lord, I know you're good, but I don't understand. Lord, I believe your promises are true, but I'm having a really hard time seeing it right now. 
That's what lamenting is. That's what the opening line of this psalm is, right? We're going to get into this later, but this is the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's clear from the rest of the language in the psalm that, that the psalmist doesn't believe that God has actually abandoned them, but this is the truest thing they could feel in the moment. It feels like you have abandoned me. Why? That's what a lament is. The biblical scholar James Luther May says this about lament, and specifically Psalm 22. He says, faith includes holding the worst of life up to God. Holding the worst of life. So if prayer is the equivalent to being fully yourself with God, then we have to conclude this includes the difficult aspects of our existence, the difficult things that are to talk about, right? The sorrow and the grief. And lament is also tied to repentance. And this is where because when we lament our, our sin, we're grieving the brokenness that our sin has created. In order to really repent, we have to grieve its brokenness first. And Pastor Brett's going to actually unpack that more next week. This week, we're going to focus more on the side of grief of this conversation. Okay, so uh, this psalm. Jesus quotes this psalm himself on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus himself laments before God. Take that in for a moment. This is Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, one of the triune Godhead, equal with God in power and glory and majesty, who was there in the beginning, the one through whom everything has been made. Jesus, expresses grief before God. When the first line of the psalm was given, this happens a lot in scriptures where one line will be referenced or the first line of a passage will be, will be stated, and it's meant to evoke the rest of the passage to the reader. It's like if I say glass slipper, right? What comes to mind when I say glass slipper? You think of Cinderella. You not only think of just Cinderella's foot, you think of the context of the whole story. All that imagery is brought to mind. This is what happens in the Bible. When Jesus declares, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The reader is meant to see all of Psalm 22. Now, this psalm is pretty long, so we're not going to be able to go through it line by line. But we're going to look at the overall structure of the psalm. We're going to pull a few key details from it and uh, kind of see what this could be saying to us. So in the introduction, it begins with this cry of distress, right? Expressing this abandonment. My, by God, and it sets this tone for the psalms, psalmist's uh, anguish in the psalm. And again, this is the one that Jesus quotes on the cross, and because of this, this psalm has been retroactively seen through a Christological lens, where once this psalm was written in the tradition of King David and his suffering, um, and there is some eschatological kind of messianic prophecies in it, now we get to see those things in clarity because of the life of Jesus. And we see that that Jesus allows himself to enter into every deep cavern of pain and suffering, that the worst suffering a person can experience, right? Which, the worst suffering a person can experience, I think, I can't be sure of this, but I think would be to know God intimately and then to feel like God has abandoned you. This is where the mystery of the Trinity kind of blows my mind a little bit because God himself is on the cross but he sent his son to the cross, and it's the same thing, but it's different, right? It's, it's weird. 
Jesus is in this place where he himself is God, but he feels abandoned by his Father. So somehow in this mystery of the Trinity, he's felt abandoned by the people that love him most, the person that loves him most, and he's been separated within himself. He's been fragmented. He's able to enter into that level of suffering. But then verse 3 turns to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. And the fact that God has, that their, that their ancestors have put their trust in God and God has delivered them from their affliction. So he acknowledges, this is what I feel, but this is what I know to be true of you. So already he's setting the stage. God, this is what I feel, but this is what I know to be true of you. But then he turns back to his predicament and he says, but I am a worm, not a man. I think of that scene in Hercules with pain and panic. We are worms. Anyway, um, <laughs> I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It's really easy right now to see the parallels, right, between the suffering of the psalmist and the suffering of Jesus during the crucifixion as people literally mocked him as they watched his execution, calling him mockingly the king of the Jews. And then the psalmist describes his own sin nature, which is really, it makes this really even more difficult to see Jesus in this because we know that, of course, Jesus is without any sin. But he's taken on the burden of sin, right? This is the prophecy of the suffering man in Isaiah that he became sin who knew no sin. And then there's more descriptions of the psalmist's affliction, which again so closely parallels the suffering of Jesus. This section right here in verse 15 through 18 feels like it was taken right out of the Gospel of John. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Think of Jesus saying, I thirst. You have put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. John literally recounts this as people gamble for Jesus' robes. Then there's a prayer for deliverance in verse 19. The psalmist petitions God to deliver him from the distress, and he he pleads for this divine intervention. So the, the psalmist asked God to deliver him from, from his affliction, and here we get some really powerful Christological um, implications, right? The psalmist asks God, deliver me from the sword. And then it says that the Lord does this. It's implied that the Lord does indeed rescue the psalmist from this impending physical doom. But if we look to the story of Jesus, we actually see that this is not what happens, is it? Jesus allows himself to be struck down by violence. Jesus allows himself to be killed by the sword so that he could defeat all swords forever, so that he could put an end to suffering and death itself. And this is where the scope of salvation, we see here that it zooms out, that we often have what we think should be salvation, but God's plan for redemption is always much, much bigger. Right? The, 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 the scope for salvation to the, to the Jews back then was this kind of imminent governmental military salvation. Save us geographically and politically from the turmoil that we've been put in. That, and they, this, is what they thought, this is what they thought the Messiah was going to do. This is why they were so confused with Jesus. 
when he makes his triumphal entry into, the, into Jerusalem and he has no army and he has no way to th- overthrow the emperor. And that's why Peter, when they finally come to arrest Jesus, Peter's like, okay, here we go, right? I got my sword, take it out. Eh, and he hacks off the, the guard's ear. Sorry for the miming. But that's what happens, right? I'm like a comic book character. That's what happens. They're waiting for Jesus to be this military leader. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus chooses to suffer under the affliction of human sin and evil and brokenness so that it could be made ineffective in the grave. Jesus resurrects into new life, showing that all of evil has, that evil can do its absolute worst, but it means nothing to the author of life. And the psalm here moves into this kind of eschatological end of the, end of the age language. It says that all of the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. But this bowing down doesn't come through conquests. It doesn't come by defeating them. No, Jesus invites all nations and all people to bow down and worship the love and grace of Jesus. The tone shifts from this lament, this grief, this pain, to this confidence and praise in who God is and what he's done. It acknowledges the Lord's sovereignty. And at the end of this passage, we see this language, he has done it, which a lot of scholars think this is actually what Jesus was echoing when he says on the cross, finally, it is finished. It is done. So what does all this mean? What what does this have to do with anything? We get to take part in resurrection. We get to take part in new life. This is an ultimate resurrection, right? This is an ultimate new life that one day the heavens and the earth will be made new and we will have resurrected bodies that are free of sin and iniquity and amen and hallelujah. That's amazing. There's also this new life that we have access to right now. The old is gone and the new is here. I'm putting off the old man, putting on the new. There's this, there's this redeeming that we get to experience right here, right now. The only way to get to resurrection is through the cross. The only way to get to new life is through death. So we need to learn how to die well. We need to learn what it is to go through suffering well. Right? Jesus at one point, he says, take heart, for in this life you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. He doesn't say you might have trouble. He says you will Friends, everyone in this room, some of you are much older than me, some of you some younger, you will have suffering or you've had suffering. You will endure pain. That's not a question. It is going to happen and it has happened. The question is, how do we do it? How do we suffer? Remember that book, Going on a Bear Hunt? You get to the puddle, right? Can't go around it. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Gotta go through it. You have to go through it. The only way to truly experience the joy and new life of resurrection hope is to endure suffering, is to go through the pain and grief of this life. And that can be worship in itself. Luther Mays says this again about this psalm. The psalm combines prayer and praise, language of suffering and celebration in one arc of unity so as to say the one is not to be understood apart from the other. 
I love the weight of that last line, that one is not to be understood apart from the other. This is why we, we participated in Ash Wednesday last week, to sit in the ashes of our failure and the redemption of Christ, because in order to fully embrace and, 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 and fully celebrate what God has done, we must see what we've been rescued from. We must meditate on who we are apart from Christ. We are but dust. That song, It Is Well, that we sang earlier, the story of that hymn is actually really powerful. You should look it up. But basically, this man who wrote it, he returns to the scene of the crime where he lost his family. And I guarantee you that this song that came out of him, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, I can guarantee you that hymn of praise came through a lot of suffering, came through a lot of grief, and lament for him to be able to get to that place where he could say those words, it is well with my soul. You can't just jump to the end. <laughs> you can't just get to resurrection without the crucifixion. You've seen that movie Inside Out by Pixar? This is required viewing if you're going to attend this church. Uh, I'm kind of kidding, but you should watch it. It's really good. But basically, this 10-year-old girl, Riley, right, she, she has to move. And to a 10-year-old girl, this is, this is universe shifting, right? Everything she's ever known, she has to move away. And she experiences all this loss of not having her friends and losing her hockey and not having this community. Her parents are busy and she's feeling unseen. But the whole time throughout the movie, they're telling her, buck up, kid. Keep, keep, keep being positive. Come on, keep, keep the smile. That's going to make daddy happy, right? Like, keep the smile. And her brain neurologically starts to not be able to get there. She tries to force herself to feel happy, but she can't. Why? Because she hasn't allowed herself to feel her grief. She hasn't allowed herself to mourn her loss. If we power through and get to happiness, it's not because we're actually full of joy. It's because we've stuffed down our grief. And that's not true joy. That's not true joy. Without healthy grief, Without a healthy rhythm of repentance, we can't really embrace the joy in the new life of God. Now again, we wonder, why is, why is repentance and, and grief, why are these images connected in the Bible? Well, the way I see it, grief and, and repentance, they form this symbiont circle, right? Within both lies a bit of each other, right? Because it is sin which causes us to do harm to others and to harm to ourselves, and this creates brokenness in the world. And it is that brokenness which pushes us to then avoid or to numb it. And that moves us to sin. And that sin creates more brokenness. That brokenness creates more sin. And the cycle goes on and on. If we want to break up this cycle, we need to repent of our sin as to not create more brokenness. And we have to grieve our brokenness rather than run to sin. Friends, if we do not grieve our brokenness, you will run to sin. That's what happens. We need to grieve well. A crucial aspect of our repentance is our grief, right? And this psalm, it, it, it gives us examples of all kinds of suffering all over David's life. Situational suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering. If we do not have the ability to confront the pain and suffering in our lives, friends, it will leak out into other areas. We like to think that we're tough, right? Like, oh no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. 
I'm tough. Rub some dirt in it, right? Pull, your up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Toughen up. We like to think that this is tough, but guess what? When we don't deal with the deep pain of loss in our lives, that brokenness will leak out in other ways. It's like a dam that has too much water. If you don't let it go, if you don't let the water through, it will leak out around you. And this kind of leakage, it's, it's toxic. That's why for the Christian, the discipline of lament is not just a side dish for the Jesus follower. Rather, it is an essential aspect of Christian worship. If we cannot face what lies beneath our sin, what lies beneath our brokenness, it will continue to have power over us. But if we grieve and we mourn the loss that we've experienced, we grieve what brokenness has done to us, that can become worship unto God. And that worship unto God gives us new life. Because our brokenness and our pain, it's going to want us to run to sin, to numb it or escape it, right? And that doesn't all look the same. In what ways do you find yourself trying to run from your pain or to numb it or escape it? Is it, is it food? Do you want that dopamine hit, that sugar rush, that feeling that I can't eat enough to really satisfy that pain that's within me? Is it, is it gluttony? Is it lust? Is it sexual promiscuity? Is it pornography? Is it greed? Is it excessive spending? Is it, is it, is it addictive shopping? Is it covetousness? Do you find yourself experiencing bitterness for the life you wish you had, but for the life that other peoples have that you don't? Or is it violence? Maybe you're not able to physically be violent under the law, but you find yourself violent in your thoughts. You find yourself spewing hateful words behind the wheel of your car that you can't believe are coming out of your mouth. Is it isolation? Do we cut ourselves off from community? Because we believe the lie that nobody can handle my junk. Nobody can handle what I've got in here. So pe people are better off without me. What is it? Because friends, all of this, all the things that I just, it's idolatry. <laughs> all of that shows itself when life gets hard. And if God doesn't respond how and when we think he should, we're quick to run to these other altars in our lives. I don't know about you, but I can see a little bit of myself in all of those areas of sin, some more than others. But these are the broken ways that we try to deal with our grief and our pain, but that will just continue the brokenness cycle. It'll just continue to harm the people around you. Because your grief and your pain, it's going to exhibit as other things for, mo for a lot of us. It's going it's to funnel out somewhere else. For some of us, it's anger, right? That's one of the stages of grief. We just get angry. If we never move past that anger to see what's beneath it, it has power over us, right? C.S. Lewis wrote this book called uh, A Grief Observed. And in it, he has this line that I love. He says, I sat with my anger long enough until she told me her real name was grief. If we don't process our grief and pain, it impacts all of the other aspects of our lives, even if we don't know it. So, instead of leaking out like this toxic waste to all the people around us, harming the people closest to us, instead of running to the altars of idolatry that we've erected in our hearts and minds that are going to steal, kill, and destroy us, we rather, we pour out our sorrow as worship unto God. 
And in his hands, he has healing for us. He has redemption for us. It's the safest place it can go. All of that toxic waste, all those horrible thoughts, all of that, that, that darkness, it's good that it goes to God because he's the best person to handle it, right? We bring it as worship. Again, the discipline of lament is not just a side dish. It is essential aspect of Christian worship. Also, a little side note here, grieving our pain, knowing how to do that really well, will also help us to forgive people that have wronged us. Because in order to forgive really, like in order to really have reconciliation between you and me, I have to be willing to embrace the full impact of how you have harmed me. But we don't like this, do we? <laughs> you know when people apologize, like, oh, listen, I'm so sorry. Like, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal, it's fine, it's no big We say those things, right? That's not forgiveness. <laughs> That's passivity. That's choosing not to confront the pain. Real forgiveness is not passivity. Real forgiveness means looking into the face of all of that hurt and damage that sin has caused and admitting to yourself and to others, you know what, it, it's not okay. In fact, what you did to me is the opposite of okay. And it has harmed me. But here's where forgiveness comes in. Because my heavenly father has not held my egregious sins against me, no longer do I hold your sins against you. That's forgiveness. And isn't that far more powerful than, oh no, it's fine, it's okay. When we all know it's not. <laughs> we all know it's not okay that you said that thing or did that thing or didn't do that thing. We all know it's not okay. But there's grace and there's forgiveness that will make it better, that will make it new. Forgiveness isn't meaningful because sin isn't a big deal. Forgiveness is meaningful because sin destroys everything. But the mercy of our Lord changes everything. That's why it's meaningful. So church, if we're going to reflect our rabbi and our savior Jesus and work to break this cycle of brokenness and sin, we first need to grow in our capacity to repent and to forgive. And if we're going to grow in our capacity to repent and to forgive, we must grow in our capacity to grieve and lament. We need to be able to do this. So it's okay. Whatever it is that you're holding in your heart, whatever it is that you're grieving, it's okay to let it up and to let it out. And yeah, it's ugly. And yeah, it's embarrassing. I've done some ugly crying in my days. It's okay to ugly cry in front of your community of people who love Jesus. And God is not taken aback by your sorrow. He's not taken aback by your grief. He's ready for it. There's nothing that you could dish up to him that he cannot handle, I promise you. And in that act of prayer and worship, that's where we experience new life. That's where we experience new hope. That's where we experience endurance. And then when suffering comes again, we actually find that we are stronger this time. We actually find that we can do more this time because we've grieved well. But if we never grieve well, it's just weakening the foundation. And eventually, eventually, that house will crumble. So friends, as we take out our communion elements, remember this. Christ has given us permission to lament. Why? Because he himself 
laments. And in this, he has proven to us that he is willing to plunge the depths of human suffering and pain so that he can do it with us and so that he can deliver us from it. If you have yet to say yes to Jesus and make him the Lord of your life, I am really, really grateful that you're here. And I'm gonna ask that at this time, you simply hold these elements in your hands and not partake in them simply because this is an act of worship that is sacred to us and reserved for those who claim Jesus as their Lord. But if you are ever in a place where you're ready to say yes to Jesus, where you want to become a follower, where you want to become a disciple, and to experience this new life and receive this hope of the resurrection, we would love to pray that prayer with you. Um, And there are going to be people here at the end of the service to pray with you if that's what you want to do. But until then, hold these elements in your hand and meditate on them. This is how much Christ loves you. Everything Jesus has done, he has done so that you can be with him forever. And the depths of that love go all the way to the deepest crevice of human suffering. Jesus endured all of this, all of this, to show us that nothing, even evil at its worst, nothing can come between us and the life of God if we say yes to him. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this and remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to take just three minutes to sit in silent reflection and to pray. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what have I not grieved properly? What pain, what loss have I experienced that I have not allowed God in on fully? Or what am I grieving right now? What am I mourning right now? Lord, help me mourn it well so that I can experience your new life. Maybe you're grieving for others. Maybe there are those in your life who are enduring immense suffering. Grieve for them. Mourn on their behalf. We're going to take three minutes, and then the worship team will come up and we'll close with one more song. Lord, during this time, would you have your way? Holy Spirit, descend on us now and speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen.